Psychologists and psychiatrists look for certain conditions that negatively affect people, uh, the way they think and the way they act. That's their business. That's what psychologists and psychiatrists do. And then, of course, what they try to do is to help people to understand and correct those negative ways of thinking and acting. Sometimes those negative ways of thinking and acting are called complexes. And psychologists and psychiatrists try to deal with the complexes that people have. Now, we understand that there's such a thing as clinical psychosis. There are some people who are truly mentally ill, and and those people need that kind of professional help. But I want to suggest to you that all of us in varying degrees are affected by some types of negative thoughts and actions. And the Bible is a great help uh, as it addresses these things. So tonight what we want to do is look at some of what we would refer to as destructive complexes. Some ways of thinking and acting that are destructive to ourselves and potentially destructive to others. We want to look at destructive complexes. But as we talk about this, we want to note this verse. I don't know if my pen's going to work there. This verse from Proverbs 21 and verse 2, which says, People may be right in their own eyes, but the Lord examines the heart. People can think what they want to think. They can think about themselves the way they like to think about themselves. But God truly knows our heart, and He has the answers to life's problems. And so we want to study along those lines for a few minutes tonight. Thank you for being here. Thank you for making this worship service a a part of your Lord's Day at the end of the day, to come together again to study and worship. And we thank you for that priority in your life. Thanks for being here, and thanks to those who are visiting. And we just appreciate so much your diligence and your participation in these acts of worship tonight. Again, our principle is that whatever we think, or whatever a professional counselor may say, we know that God accurately knows our heart, and He knows the right ways in which we ought to be thinking and acting. One of the destructive ways that people think and act is what we might refer to as an introvert complex. Uh, An introvert is literally someone who is turned inward. That's what the idea of introvert means. And very often when we talk about an introvert, we're describing someone that we perceive as particularly shy or timid. And that may be the case, and that may be one usage of the word. But more accurately defined, an introvert is a person who is predominantly concerned with self. That's the idea. Not not looking outward, only looking inward at self. And it's easy to see how that this could be a very hurtful thing in the case of Christians. Because as the people of God, we have obligations uh, to our fellow Christians that require us to be open and to be interactive with one another. And so if I'm an introvert at an extreme level, and I'm only thinking of self, only looking inwardly, not not looking outward to know about those things that pertain to other people, then that's a problem. That's a problem for me, and it's hurtful to the church. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, the Hebrew writer said, Let us consider 
how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Well, I'm supposed to be thinking about you. I'm supposed to be thinking about ways that I can interact with you that would be such as would stimulate you to love and good works. But if I'm very introverted and I think only, I turn inwardly, I think only of myself, I'm not really trying to establish a relationship with you, then it'd be very hard to do that job, wouldn't it? And so this, this degree of being introverted, we're not just talking about the person who's naturally shy or a little timid. We're, about, we're talking about the person who does not want, who consciously avoids trying to establish relationships with others. That's hurtful. And it needs to change because you can't really carry out your duties as a Christian in that way. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14, Paul says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Well, if I'm an extreme introvert, I don't know who the faint-hearted are because I haven't related to them to know what they're dealing with in their life. I'm not sure who the weak ones are, because I haven't really ever talked to anybody to know about their situations. You see, again, this and lots of other passages would tell us we've got to know each other. We have to be involved in one another's lives. And that being the case, this introvert complex is a destructive one. Now, I'm not suggesting here that you have to be an extreme extrovert. The opposite of an introvert is an extrovert. And when you think of an extrovert, you're thinking of someone who is uh, always the life of the party. He's loud and boisterous and jovial and, he's, and, and he never met a stranger and all that sort of thing. We're not saying you have to be that. But you can't just be turned totally inward and avoiding to build relationships with your fellow Christians. If you do that, it's destructive to you and the church. Another complex that we might mention is what we might identify as a persecution complex. Now, again, I have to explain what I mean here when I talk about a persecution complex. We know that Christians always have been, and even to this day, are suffering persecution. And in fact, the Lord told us to anticipate that we'll be persecuted. 2 Timothy 2, verse 12 says, Yea, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So we understand the reality of persecution. But when, what we have in mind when we talk of some who have a persecution complex we're, is in that we're describing a person who thinks that really everybody is out to get them. And, and that being the case, then every word spoken by others, uh, everything other people do, they believe is designed to hurt them. They're out to get me. He said that just because he wanted to hurt my feelings, so to speak. What this does, of course, is cause people to misjudge the deeds and motives of others. Uh, I remember once when a brother took exception to a bulletin article that I had written. And uh, he took me aside to challenge me about this bulletin article. He said, I think you had me in mind when you wrote that bulletin article. I said, brother, I didn't. I, I, I tell you absolutely and honestly, I did not have you in mind when I wrote that bulletin. Well, I said, I just think you did. I said, well, I didn't. But then I added the expression, that I probably shouldn't have added. I said, if the shoe fits, wear it. Oh, wow. That was all that was needed. That, 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 that brother held a grudge against me for a long time thereafter. 
I would say that that's just looking for something, right? I mean, uh, even when I strongly affirmed that I did not have him in mind, he was still sure that I did have him in mind. And he was sure I was purposefully taking aim at him. That's the idea that we have in mind here with the persecution complex. And the problem with it, as we said, is it causes you to misjudge the deeds and motives of others. This is wrong. And actually, it gets you close to crossing that line of false and sinful judging. Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter... Let's see if we can get this to go here. I'm in a little trouble. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 7. You might remember this context is where Samuel had been sent to anoint a new king over Israel... Saul had failed. Saul was being uh, taken out of, of, the, of the kingship. His, his dynasty, his reign was not going to continue. And God was going to select a, and ordain a new king over Israel. And Samuel had been sent to the house of Jesse to pick out that king. And so the sons of Jesse start coming forward. And there's some impressive guys there. And, and God kept saying, that's not the one, that's not the one. And, and as you re- well remember, it eventually ended up being David, the youngest. But Samuel was warned here. He says, The Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. The problem with men is man looks on the outward appearance. That's the problem, right? We're just looking at what we can see. God can read our hearts. God looketh on the heart, but we are inclined to just look at appearances. And actually, we're commanded not to do that. In John chapter 7, verse 24, judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. And that's what we need to be doing. But the person who has this persecution complex uh, is inclined to not think that way and to judge unrighteously that everything that's happening is being wrongly directed to me. A persecution complex. There are some people who have what we would identify as an inferiority complex. And I think you probably know this one very well. I mean, that's been around for a long time. We understand uh, the meaning of that. The, The person with the inferiority complex says, I have nothing to offer. Uh... I, I really, I'm, I just don't have, I have no abilities. I have no capabilities. I don't know enough. I'm not good enough. I, there's just, I just can't do anything. I'm just not going to be able to be productive in God's service. Who's that remind you of? I think you would probably do as I did in thinking about this, to think about the one talent man in Matthew chapter 25, the The one talent man, when he was called on to give an answer to his master, says, beginning verse 24, He which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid, and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast that is thine. And his Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant. And so here's the one talent man. He said, I was just afraid I, I couldn't do anything with that. I was afraid I'd lose that. I knew you were a hard man, a hard guy to satisfy. I was just afraid that I couldn't do anything good with the money that you entrusted to me. I think it's significant that in this parable, Jesus had the master call that one talent man wicked and slothful. That's pretty strong, isn't it? He was afraid. He, was, he felt inferior. 
Those other guys, the five-talent man, the two-talent man, those guys are, man, those guys, y'all want to tell you something, that five-talent guy, he is, that guy is gifted. He's, he can do anything. He can do everything. That five-talent man. And the two-talent man, he's not bad either. He's a pretty skillful guy. Me, I'm just a one-talent man. I don't have any skills. I don't have any ability. I can't do anything. You see how the Lord condemned him for having that view. He had, he had ability. The Lord gave them, according to their several abilities, this guy had ability. And he didn't use it. That's the problem with this inferiority complex. It keeps us from doing what we should. In Revelation 21, verse 8, I think you know this verse very well. Notice, the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. If we are among the fearful and that fearfulness is manifested in us, and saying, I just can't. I just don't think I'm able. I don't, I don't have the talent to do the things that God wants me to do. If we possess that sort of a inferiority outlook on ourselves, that's destructive. Again, and it's destructive to us personally, and it's hurtful to our collective work in the local congregation when we think of ourselves that way. There is what's called a narcissist, a narcissist complex. Are you familiar with this? Are you familiar with the story of Narcissus? Now, this comes from Greek mythology, which is a lot of foolishness in itself. But uh, in Greek mythology, Narcissus was a hunter who one day stopped and stooped over a pool of water to get a drink. And he saw his reflection in the pool of water. And he was so taken with himself, he fell in love with his reflection in the water uh, and it, it became a ruination. His, his infatuation with himself became a ruination to him and, and the people, all the people around him. This complex, this narcissus complex, is descriptive of a person with an excessive self-love. Uh, the manifestations of that self-love will be pride, uh, seeking to gratify themselves uh, in any way they can, even seeking to gratify themselves even to the hurt of other people. That's the idea of this narcissus complex. It's not new. People who, with excessive self-love have been around for a long time. And Paul even described some in 2 Timothy 3, beginning verse 2. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, Truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. That's a pretty bad list, wouldn't you agree? There are a lot of things mentioned there, and we could spend time speaking of each of them, but it's a bad list of characteristics. Did you see the one that starts out? Men shall be lovers of their own selves. This idea of excessive self-love is a very hurtful thing. Uh, it causes all sorts of trouble. It causes trouble in people's personal lives. It causes trouble in people's family lives. And it causes problems in the Lord's church and among God's people for those who have this sort of excessive self-love. The reason why this is really a big problem is described in what Jesus said in Matthew 13, beginning verse 15. The problem is that these people will not, they're not open to hearing anything negative about themselves. They're, they're not open 
to constructive criticism. They're not open to correction. They're not open to someone says, you're wrong. You know, you're wrong about that. Oh, no, not me. Not me. I couldn't be wrong, right? I have this narcissist complex. You can't, you can't prove to me I'm wrong. I'm, I'm good about everything. They're not open to see the, their own failings. In Matthew 13, beginning verse 15, Jesus said, This people's heart is waxed gross. Their ears are dull of hearing. Their eyes they have closed. Lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and should be converted and I should heal them. They're just not going to allow that to happen. Because they can't, they're incapable of seeing any fault in themselves. But Jesus said, blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. We're blessed when we have our eyes and ears open to receive the instruction of God's word, to see where it applies to us, to see where our failings are and to make changes. We're blessed when that happens. But the person with this narcissus complex is not able to do that. And that's a real problem. It's a very destructive complex. Let me suggest to you that there's such a thing as an anxiety complex. If you do a little bit of searching on the internet or reading after psychologists, psychiatrists, mental health experts, I mean, there's unanimous agreement that excessive worry is very damaging to us. It's It's damaging to our mental health, but they tell us that it's even damaging to our physical health when we we are super anxious. We have anxiety. We would just say simply we worry too much. Uh, It's crippling in our day-to-day lives. It's crippling to us as Christians if we engage in too much worry, the anxiety complex. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul said... Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Think about what Paul's saying there. I mean, the first expression, the first phrase is very much toward this idea of worrying. And he says, don't worry, basically. Be anxious for nothing. Why? Why should we not be anxious? Why should we not engage in just this consuming worry? Because we have a relationship with God. We can let our requests be made known to God. We have the tool of prayer. And so instead of engaging in prayer, how about, I mean, excuse me, instead of engaging worry, how about engaging in prayer and let your request be made known to God? That was what Paul said about it in the text that Matt read for us right at the start of the service. In Matthew chapter 6, beginning verse 33, you know it very well. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Do not be anxious. There's a, there's a lot of expressions in the scripture that would warn us about this excessive worry and anxiety because God knows us and he knows that that's destructive to ourselves and to others. Well, there are five things, five complexes, if you will, negative and hurtful ways of thinking and acting. I don't think this is a comp- comprehensive list. I think you could probably add to this quite a bit. But again, I want to go back to this text from Proverbs 21.2. You might not see these things in yourself. People might be right in their own eyes, but the Lord examines the heart. God knows us. He knows our hearts. And, he's know, and He knows what's best for us and how we should think and act. And His Word addresses those things. I want to repeat again what I said at the outset. We're not suggesting 
that there is no such thing as a true clinical psychosis. We know that some people are true, have true mental illness and they need, in many instances, the help of professional people to deal with those things. As always, we caution, make sure that counselors we seek counsel from are godly counselors because there are a lot out there that are not godly counselors. We're not talking about clinical psychosis here in the things that we've been describing tonight. But we are saying that there can be an element of these things in us and that our thinking and our actions can be hurtful, destructive even to ourselves if we are not aware of what's going on and allow correction from the Word of God. Well, we appreciate your good attention to what we've had to say. This has not been a lesson that teaches the plan of salvation or encourages obedience to it. But as always, we'll end our lesson with an invitation. And the invitation comes not from us, but from God Himself. He wants you to be saved. And if that means that you need to obey that simple gospel plan of salvation, we hope you do it. If it means you need to turn back to Him, you're a Christian, but you've slipped away, and you need to come back to Him in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help in any way, let us know while we stand and sing.